This time, Huawei is excluded from some of the UK's 5G network. But what's the risk? Galileo no more. Will it matter to the military? The human rights atrocities happening right now. And the new kit being built to read the minds of fast jet pilots. I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. America is unhappy that Britain has decided to allow the Chinese telecom company Huawei to have a restricted role in the UK's 5G network. The US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in London for talks with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab. The government has decided to exclude Huawei from the most sensitive parts of the 5G network. Let's talk to James Sullivan, who's Head of Cyber Research at the Royal United Services Institute, and Christopher Lee, BFBS defence analyst who's here with me in the studio. Uh, James Sullivan, hello. Uh, what's your view on all of this? Do you think the US has over-egged the security risks of Huawei? Hello, yes. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, I think here at RUSI, we've been conducting research into this matter of 5G cybersecurity um, for the past nine months. And I think our conclusion this week is, from a purely technical perspective, this is a practical and realistic decision. It adheres to the principles of cyber risk management. It reflects the expert view of the UK's national technical authority. So, yes, I don't think the um, technical advice for a complete ban really um, stands up. So you think it's the right decision then? I think it's the most practical and realistic one, given the circumstances to do with um, there's a national context that we have to consider here, which takes into account things like vendor diversity, cost, um, national cybersecurity experience, too. So I I think it's a a measured uh, approach from the UK. It's a bit of a mischaracterization when people say Huawei has free reign over 5G networks. That's not the case. It's an extremely limited uh, role which is reduced to 35% of just the edge of the network. So these are components such as masts and antennae, um, which are not as um, sensitive as uh, core elements of the network, which know much more about how the network works and uh, what it does. So, so yes, I think uh, uh, the common sense has prevailed. And can you actually effectively restrict Huawei's role? I mean, if they did want to get round the restrictions, could they? Are you, um, if you're referring to um, their role in the network as part of the, the core and the edge, you certainly can. I mean, our, our, our research has identified a number of um, cybersecurity measures which, uh, you know, historically isolate and localize risks in telecommunications networks. Um, it's really important not to ignore these. We're talking about access management, testing and monitoring network segmentation. So the 5G is actually evolutionary technology in this context. So we're building on on top of 4G uh, networks. So it's really, really important to embrace these um, existing cybersecurity measures, which do protect networks. And, and and as I said, I think, you know, the UK has a really good experience at doing this. Christopher Lee. You know, we shouldn't, we, we, we shouldn't just sort of uh, uh, take this idea of uh, cybersecurity too easily. Um, the, the United Kingdom uh, cyber defence system, the intelligence services, know exactly which systems are likely to be targeted by anybody. They know the personalities involved and and they understand what their ambitions are. Therefore, they know the targets. They know how to, in, in, in present technologies, how to defend them. And they know the other intruders. Uh, because if we think that the whole uh, cyber attack is going to, likely to be by the, the makers of 5G, 
then forget it because the the whole world is full of people who are going to be attacking all sorts of things. And uh, in, in the United Kingdom system, as they are in everybody else's system. And so it is not simply a Huawei uh, problem. James Sullivan, how much of this do you think is about, really, when it comes down to it, geopolitics? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we've obviously talked about the technical element. Um, I, you know, I think it's it's you know perfectly acceptable to say you know Huawei equipment does pose a risk, and I, I think you know as correctly just said there, you know, that there's risks from lots of suppliers. But you know, this is not just about cybersecurity. And if we look at it in isolation, then I think we're being a bit naive. This debate's become part of a wider geopolitical conversation. It relates to political issues about China's place in the world, advanced Chinese innovation in technology fears that the West is falling behind. There are also legitimate human rights concerns about how Chinese technology companies enable the Chinese government allegedly to suppress its citizens. So um, we've seen the US government's uh, intervention here. There have been bold threats and the UK government has to take into account threats that the US will no longer share intelligence with the UK. So we have to take all these into account. I think. I think the key conclusion here is that we we got to we can't conflate the technical and the political when we're making our final decisions. So, for some nations, political, economic, and human rights factors do matter. They might be overriding factors that lead to the decision to ban a particular vendor. That's an entirely legitimate national approach. But here in the UK, there have been a lot of uh, you know, weak assertions made about technical risk management um, they've been conflated with political considerations and all that really does at the end is just undermine the ncsc's technical assessment and that's really important because over the next 10 years we're going to be talking about ai quantum computing making lots of decisions relating to mm. the globalization of technology and we've got to get this right so the national security council as you say it's made its decision um what do you think the next threat is what do you think should be considered in future where, where is our eye potentially off the ball well, um, yeah, good question. As we as we're going to roll out a research paper on 5G, we're actually talking about what we're going to research next. Um, there's a few things. There's the the Internet of Things. So all these devices that will connect to 5G networks, how do we protect them? There are supply chain security. So it's not just Huawei who's a supplier of 5G. There's going to be lots of other providers providing individual components. And finally. Um, artificial intelligence and the cybersecurity of artificial intelligence and um, this big word called quantum computing um, mm. which is coming out so we, we want to we really want to look at these issues unpack them not be so short-sighted about because the 5g threat is kind of just 5g is already here and we're now making decisions on it we should be making these decisions five ten years in advance james sullivan please come back and talk to us about all those things in the future when your paper's done uh, good to speak to you today james sullivan from Rusi. Now, the EU is building its own version of GPS Galileo. The UK was part of it and part funded it, but because we're leaving the EU, the Europeans have told Britain it can no longer be part of it. Well, let's talk to Dr Blevin Bowen, who's a lecturer in international relations at the University of Leicester. For the UK Ministry of Defence, not being part of the Galileo project means very little in practice in, in, the, in the immediate future. Uh, because what Galileo does is provide a navigation uh, and position and, and timing service 
uh, for approved users from the public regulated service, which is the military grade signal within Galileo. Um, because the Ministry of Defence was always going to have the American GPS system as its preferred navigation service. Galileo was going to be a backup to GPS uh, as well. So um, so in, in the short term, there's going to be no difference to the issue of navigation services for the Ministry of Defence. So, you know, ships and planes and bombs and troops will still have the same navigation services as they were planning to have anyway. Um, the issue is sort of far more infrastructural and long-term, really, when most European militaries will have military-grade signals from both GPS and Galileo. And perhaps if the EU becomes a more significant military actor, um, especially with high-level technologies, they, it'll just make the European allies of Britain sort of use Galileo first rather than GPS. But that could be something, you know, 10, 15 years from now. There's also the possibility that Britain could negotiate access to use that signal as well, because what Britain has lost really is the right to bid for the contracts to build the Galileo navigation uh, technologies, which is what the first was about, um, you know, a few years ago, a couple of years ago. So um, America and Norway, which aren't part of the EU, are already starting to negotiate with Brussels about being able to have their militaries use Galileo as a backup signal to GPS as well. So there's no reason that with political will from both sides, Britain could also negotiate that in the years to come as well. So in practical near term, um, you know, terms, there's there's no real immediate change for the MOD. Christopher Lee is here. It's it's also true that uh, if you you think about transition to war or in time of war, um, then all the facilities that you've got you're going to make available to other people, whether it be the British or the Americans or whoever. Um, your 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 whole defence is 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 decided upon that. Um, yes, and you know, in a time of war, then more resilience and redundancy is always a good thing, which is why. Um, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, the Americans have been much more uh, upfront about wanting to use Galileo as a backup, um, just in case there are serious problems with uh, GPS on the military side. But it also provides a resilience on the civilian and sort of infrastructure side as well. So um, if uh, military problems with the GPS do have a knock on into the civilian side, then the way we use um, satellite navigation systems for all sorts of um, civilian uses or emergency disaster response will still have Galileo to use as well. And uh, British state and British civil um, services will still be able to use the um, publicly available civilian signals of Galileo as well, which are not as accurate um, as the military-grade PRS service in Galileo. And the Americans have also degraded uh, in in time of tension, for example, not even warfare, but in time of tension, they have have degraded the GPS in order that, in theory, a potential enemy can't use it. Uh, yes, um, so they they do that to the civilian signals. So GPS also provides a civilian signal that anyone with a right receiver can use, so like your smartphone now, for example, um, but also the high-grade, um, high-accuracy and uh, encrypted uh, military signal. Uh, and what the Americans do, yes, is in uh, on a regional basis, they will degrade. So, for example, in the 90s, they degraded it over the Balkans, um, but also uh, in the Middle East uh, and, you know, Iraq and the Persian Gulf uh, in those interventions there. But the military signal remains sort of uh, unaffected because you need the authorised and encrypted uh, transceivers to be able to use the military system. And that was, um, But the de- degradation to the civilian signal is one of the reasons 
why the EU was very keen to build its own civilian orientated navigation system uh, because it, it would still have a reliable um, uh, position navigation and timing service that the Americans could not choose to degrade so that the Europeans would have more control over what is now a very important infrastructural technology. So going forward, um, the loss of being part of Galileo is no great loss. Um, not in practical terms for actual capabilities for the British military, not at all. It's really a big loss for certain companies in the UK space sector because of the loss of contracts of this massive EU-funded project. But in, in real military terms, cap capability terms, it's no real loss because the UK MOD was always going to use GPS as its um, navigation service of choice. Dr. Bledenbowen, thank you very much for your time. Still to come, the new technology to read the minds of future fast jet pilots. Now, Monday this week was Holocaust Memorial Day. Also, it was 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. It's been a week of speeches reminding us of the atrocities and warning us not to forget. We may not forget, but do we have the courage to deal with the modern versions of Auschwitz, even on a smaller scale? The answer to that simple question is no. The atrocity of unopposed persecution of civilians of all creeds and castes goes on. Paul Rogers is Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. Hello, Paul. Hello there. We're not talking about Auschwitz-sized atrocities here, are we? Innocent people, including children, are today being persecuted in places like India, Rwanda, Syria, Myanmar. Uh, we have never intervened. It's not at the same level, certainly. I mean, Auschwitz was the worst of the extermination camps. Over a million people were killed in that alone, and nearly a million Treblinka, and that was out of a total Jewish death toll of six million, two-thirds of all the Jews in occupied Europe. That, in turn, was part of a much wider holocaust of 17 million people, the majority overall of whom were non-Jewish non, non Soviets and Poles. So it was part of a much wider thing, but the Jewish one was very specific. The only equivalent in terms, if you like, proportions, it's terrible to use these terms, would be Rwanda in the 1970s, uh, sorry, 1990s. And essentially, in Rwanda, it's thought that about two-thirds of the Tutsi population of the country were killed in the space of a few months. And as you say, the world knew quite a lot about it, but, but stood bounded very little. So that was the worst example. That is the only one in recent times which in terms of sheer numbers and proportion of people killed um, matches what happened to the Jews in the original Holocaust. Uh, and what do you think um, when you watch those, what goes through your mind when you watch those commemorations that were on Monday? I think it's hugely important to remember. In some ways it's important to remember that while the people who suffered the worst by far were the Jews, particularly in proportion to the total number of Jews, the actual Holocaust deaths in the whole era was actually very much larger, as they nearly three times as many as the terrible Jewish losses. And you had a very large pro proportion, uh, pro proportion of the total was actually Slavs. In fact, Slavs as a kind of generic group, particularly in countries like Belarus, which was part of the Soviet Union then, suffered hugely. And I mean, Soviet prisoners of war, some three million were killed. So in a sense, I think you had to remember the whole thing, inevitably with concentration on the Jewish Holocaust, because that is the largest individually. And in a way, what it says is we still haven't learned much, and Rwanda is an example of that. And in some ways, the rule of law 
is simply not strong enough. It's never really been as strong as it should be, despite all the work of the UN, human rights declaration and all the rest, I'm afraid. I mean, Paul, you're talking about the rule of law. We have to then decide whose rule and whose and, and who's law. Absolutely. Um, and remind ourselves that what happened in Auschwitz and the, the, the smaller but imme- immensely tragic things that are going on today doesn't mean to say you, it's not in wartime. They happened before. They happened in peacetime. They still happen in peacetime. Look at what's going on, for example, in India today. Yes. Um, with the the determination of Mr. Modi, the uh, the Prime Minister in India, who has decided, who has decided and got it got it through Parliament everywhere, um, that people who are Muslims may not necessarily register to be citizens of that country, um, and in fact he wants to impose a nationwide version of uh, a, a system that would allow or, or insist that. 1.3 billion people, that's the population of India, they would all have to produce evidence of their citizenship. Now this actually stinks of the start of something which is far more sinister, but there isn't a system in the world and because India, really good friends, India, civilization, democracy, etc. And because of places like that, nobody is going to intervene because it means intervening militarily and then what do you do? What? On that note, Paul, do you think that there are alternatives to military intervention? I think there have to be because so often when there is military intervention, except in very rare cases, it ends up making matters worse. And you see, an exception may well have been Rwanda. If UN force had got in earlier enough, it might have worked. So there are exceptions. But overall, it's very much a facet of the way... It's almost as though the way that human attitudes to each other is evolving. And we have a long way to go. I agree with Christopher. It's very much a question of whose rule of law and this is where in spite of the fact that it is much denigrated i think the un system has to be the best that we've got and we have to work from that and how do you make it work though i think that well that is part of the whole issue of un reform and making it more effective for my part i think you need a larger number of countries to be committed to that kind of internationalism and to put some of their best people forward for the senior jobs we have an exceptionally good um, secretary general former prime minister of portugal at the moment possibly one of the best that's been since it was founded but you have huge numbers of people who basically they're almost hangers on i think it's the commitment of more lead member states which is crucial and personally as you probably know from past conversations i think this is a role that britain should be taking in that in that light do, do you think it's inevitable that these atrocities may maybe not on the scale of what we saw during the Holocaust will continue in some form. The risk is that they may, which is why, in fact, the Holocaust memorial that we've seen, uh, the whole focus on it in the last two or three weeks is so important. I think especially if it takes into account that it was part of a much wider, terrible phenomenon which lasted the best part of six years. There's another side of it which shows up the vulnerability of minorities, uh, which were greater than, say, at the time of, the, uh, say, 1938, 39, at the beginnings of, of the Holocaust. And that is, we know so much today. You cannot or rarely hide 
what is going on in some countries, some of the terrible atrocities and the difficulties of some people. For example, China is a place where we can say at one time we wouldn't have known what was going on in China, but now we do know and we've got sort of a, a, a visual identification. But we still haven't got a system. The United Nations would never get anything through the Security Council that would allow, would allow intervention because certainly two of the members of the United Nations Security Council are probably have, have, have pockets of guilt in, in their own countries. Gentlemen, we'll have to leave it there for now. Professor Paul Rogers, thank you very much for your time today. Now, Britain is operating its most advanced fifth-generation fighter jet, the F-35B Lightning, but the quest to stay ahead of the game never stops. The Tempest Project is researching some of the key technologies that could be part of Britain's next-generation aircraft. Mind-reading flight systems and artificial intelligence are among the concepts that could deliver air combat in 2030 and beyond. Our reporter, Sean Grezchek, has been to see the possibilities at BAE Systems, including a Skullcap, which can sense how a pilot's brain is working. She spoke to their Human Factors lead researcher, Susie Broadbent. AC5288, AC5288, tuner COM1, radio frequency 128.525. So this is a tool we've been using in the lab um, here at Wharton to help us assess workload objectively. So traditionally when we do workload assessments with operators, we just ask them for a subjective score and we interview them about why they think their workload was so high or so low. Um, but over the years, um, the technology's moved on so much that we can now start to monitor the individual and see how their body's reacting to things like stress, fatigue, and mental workload. So we can start to get a more of objective understanding and more, more evidence uh, to be able to change things within the cockpit or to be able to make the operator's life easier by introducing autonomy and things like that. So what we've got here is a NASA test. It's called the multi-attribute task battery. As you can hear, there's a lady in the background who every so often asks you to call, uh, change call signs. So that's a task that involves you listening. Um, so you have to listen for your particular call sign and then change the frequency accordingly. Whilst you're doing this, buttons are changing here, going on and off. So you've got to see when the green button goes off and when the red button comes on and select it. So that's more of an attention type task. Um, this one here is just basically keeping the track in the middle, so it's a tracking task. Mm -hmm. So essentially what it's trying to do is break down the piloting tasks into tasks you don't necessarily have to be a pilot to do. Okay. So we can get lots and lots of participants through, all while wearing the lovely bits of uh, monitoring equipment you've got in front of you. Okay. So that we can start to see how, say, so that's your EEG cap, so that monitors electrical impulses in the brain. Mm -hmm. So that you would be able to see where the brain was lighting up and which bits of the brain were being used for which different tasks. Okay, yeah. So for us as design engineers, it's brilliant. So we can start to see where in our design we may have made problems that are going to increase um, operator workload. Um, but also further on down the line as well, it could be useful in training if you can start to see where individuals are struggling. Um, so you can do targeted training. And also ultimately in the cockpit in a future fighter where we can understand when an operator is perhaps getting overloaded and the aircraft or someone on the ground or somebody else could take over some of the tasks from the operator, meaning they don't get overloaded and tasks don't get shed. So essentially if you're a pilot um, and you you might not necessarily want to admit that you're having a problem or you're not quite sure 
-hmm. that you have reached your limit yet, the actual kit will tell you officially on the record you are too tired or you need to take a break or... Potentially. It'll be different red lines for different people and some people will have better coping mechanisms than others. I mean, it, it, it's brain science. It is quite complicated. Um, but it will give us that indication there and it will be able to help us a lot more than traditional subjective measures have taken us. I mean, if you also think as maybe a commander of a flight, if you can get that information on what the other crew are feeling like, you might decide who to send where based on yeah. what state mm -hmm. they're in. I mean, we've always had warnings panels on the aircraft about bits of the aircraft that may not be performing correctly, but we've mm -hmm. never had anything on the human. Yeah. And they're part of the system themselves. We need to start treating them as such. So what we're looking at is a lot of human autonomy teaming, how the operator and the machine can work together in the future. Mm -hmm. um, much, if you think of it like an R2-D2 kind of communication between the two, that's also an issue we're looking at. How, do, how would you communicate with the machine? The machine can monitor you, you can monitor the machine so you understand and work mm -hmm. together to solve the task in hand. Yeah, you mentioned R2-D2 <laughs> from Star Wars then, do, does this virtual assistant have a name at the moment? At the moment he's Ivor, he's an intelligent virtual assistant but that may well change. Um, traditionally for warnings in the cockpit we've used a female voice because it breaks through the noise a lot better, a lot of male voices out there in the moment so we've used a female voice because it, it's yeah. easier to hear at that pitch. So whether Ivor will become a female but whether they'll communicate by voice is another design decision for us in human mm -hmm. factors. It might be different for different people. Some people may work better off voice. Some people may work better off a Twitter feed type yes. of information. Yeah. Or potentially with the virtual reality stuff you've been looking at, it could be an avatar. It could be like a real person sat there next to you. And then you could look at them and you could see their facial expressions, for example, which is a really good indicator of, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's good news or bad. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it's things, it sounds quite futuristic, but there are different ways and we're starting to look at this stuff already. Have any of them expressed any concerns about that level of data from, from your brain being um, monitored like that? Not necessarily. There have been jokes about having to put heavy filters in it. Um, but essentially, uh, pilots are quite keen to understand anything they can to get that performance edge. So if they start to understand more about what they're doing and how they're doing it, or bits they may be better at than others, or may they may be struggling, then they can focus their training accordingly. Also, it helps with things like um, in training, instead of just relying on a subjective um, instructor, you can get data and evidence to back it up. So, okay, what happens if um, you're in the air mm -hmm. and this reveals that you, you need to stop flying essentially or you've reached your limit um, does the uh, system take over the the virtual assistant that's the idea yeah so if we can start to monitor what the pilot is f experiencing what mental state they're in then obviously we need to let the pilot know if we were taking tasks away from them because you know when you look at air crash investigations you know what's it doing now is one of the biggest issues that seems to be repeated yeah. over and over again so that's why we're looking at the human autonomy teaming can they work together can they understand more about what each other's doing so yeah if you start to get overloaded so for example um, when you see the videos of air crash investigations and all the alarms are going off and the pilot seemingly hasn't noticed if we could sense that in your brain that you haven't processed that information, the machine could either take over or present the information to you in a different way or hand control back to somebody on the ground. These are all within the mm -hmm. areas of possibility for a future fighter. 
That was Susie Broadbent, Human Factors Lead Research and Technology at BAE Systems. Christopher Lee. That's um, quite a title, isn't it? It is, isn't it? I, uh, I mean, if you put a, if you put a head brain <laughs> on that title, they bring it down to something much simpler. I think I need something in my brain. Something that's too tired to read it. Christopher, um, it is exciting technology, but how is Britain faring with its competitors? Well, it's ahead always, or behind the curve? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the British have always done this. And they've done it in the, in the Navy, for example, if you take what now is called a control room in a, in, a, in a ship. There are systems in a ship which will which will monitor. They'll monitor, for example, the air crew. Flight command will have monitors on the air crew. So it, it, it does happen. What's happening in this becomes part of the whole system. Uh, and it's rather like uh, the only other organization I know that does that was the old NASA uh, man flight organization where everything was 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 monitored as you went along from your your, your, your brain speed to uh, to heart controls so um we're just hours away from it brexit well you are <laughs> yes um and we talked about it a lot haven't we on this program and it's becoming a reality um military wise they're going to notice anything what well, europe's tomorrow gone Europe's gone and this isolated. Europe is now isolated. But what I find interesting is that if you think about it, every service Europe person, isolated. Europe is yeah. It's, it's a name of a rather famous uh, Times uh, headline: "Fog hmm. over the Channel, Europe <laughs> isolated." Um, there's a there's a famous uh, uh, sort of thought in the heads of everybody who's in the services, from the chief of the defence staff right down to the guy that's turning up at Catrick tomorrow, is this. They are all Europeans for the whole of their lives. They've been Europeans. They went into the uh, into the three services as Europeans, thinking everything everything they do, every thinking sort of time they have, whether it be at highest command or just at platoon command, it's something they have to think Europe. They have to think where they train, uh, where they train from, where their military sort of uh, ideas come from, their military history comes from. It's all Europe, Europe, Europe. From tomorrow. They're no longer Europeans. So what will they be thinking from now onwards? Uh, presumably we'll have to get one of these head caps that you stick on and find <laughs> out what they're thinking. That is it for <laughs> this week. give them great titles That anyway. is it for this week. Thanks to all of our guests and to you for listening. Join the discussion on Twitter. Follow us at BFBS Sitrep. We'll be back again same time next week from me, Kate Chabot. Bye-bye. <laughs>